Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got Psalm 73 open. That's not what we're going to be studying today, but I love Psalm 73. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We're going to talk the whole hour today. This is going to be part three of our In the Beginning series with Jeff Jeff. Verdorn. I'm going to say his name a little bit slowly this time. Jeff Verdorn. And uh, we are now in part three of In the Beginning. We're going to be covering Genesis uh, chapters two and three today. And I can hardly wait. Jeff is a Bible teacher and a mentor and friend of mine. Always glad to have him with me. Jeff, welcome. Hi, Bill. You can call me Mr. Verdorn if you want. I will. I will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think I've had other people say, I think you say his name too fast. So I want to make sure. It does kind of sound clearly. like. Jeffrey Dorn. Jeff Jeffrey Verdorn. Dorn. Yep, I know. Right, yeah, two words, Jeff Verdorn. All right, so let's do a little recap of what we did in uh, session two and then move on. So we were discussing, we spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter one looking at some, really some key components. If if you recall, we talked about that in the beginning, actually before the beginning, all we know is that there was God and God existed eternity in the past, but actually there was no time. So saying eternity past is kind of a misnomer. Somebody once asked me, what did God do for all those billions of years before he created the universe? And the answer is, well, actually there wasn't any years yet. So there wasn't billions of years. There was just God. So in the beginning, verse one, God created the heaven. This is where we discuss this word heaven, the Hebrew Shemayim, which whether it's plural or singular. And we saw that in the beginning, God created the heaven, the second heaven, which is the universe, all the stars, the galaxies, everything. And so it's a singular heaven, the second heaven, the universe, and the earth. And we discussed that this concept of a God speaking and he spoke everything into existence. Nothing that has been made was made without God. So God made everything. He spoke and everything came into existence. And actually, we talked about a little of the history of the Big Bang, that when the Big Bang was discovered that everything came from a singular point, that actually confirmed very nicely the first sentence of the book of Genesis. It's true from the very beginning. Science actually didn't believe at the time that there was a beginning uh, Hubble came along, proved that there was a start, a finite beginning to the universe, and lo and behold, the Bible was right. There was a beginning, and God created it. And then over time, we eventually get to the earth. So we get to Genesis 1-2, and God tells us now the earth was formless and void. So now we've got a hunk of rock in our solar system, you know, in our galaxy, revolving around our sun, 
but it's dead. It's lifeless. There's nothing on it. There's no life. It's just void. And there was darkness and there was nothing on it. And that's when, according to the biblical timeline, about 6,000 years ago, God says, okay, watch what I'm going to do. And in six literal days, and we talked about the days last time as well, and I do believe that they are literal days, 24-hour days, that God takes this hunk of rock, the earth, and forms a garden, a perfect garden. And in the middle of that garden, he places the pinnacle of his creation, this, this creature, man, in which he is going to have a relationship with. He's going to be united with. And so Adam Eve, Adam and Eve are farm, formed, and God is united with Adam and Eve. But that didn't last long, as we're going to see today. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to jumping into Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Yeah, so Genesis chapter 2 has some more details of this creation account. Now, there are there's much made about the sequence of events in Genesis 1 doesn't really seem to match the sequence of events in Genesis 2. And so we need to reconcile that. And without going into a ton of detail, I'm going to offer up this. And I think Genesis 2 is just more detail of what happened during uh, in, during the six days in Genesis chapter 1 without regard to the sequence of these details, if you see what I'm saying. Genesis 1 mm-hmm. is clearly sequential. Day 1, day 2, day three, 3, there is a pattern there, a sequence there that's very strong. There was evening and morning, the first day, second day, and so on. Genesis 2, while some want to infer a timing of what happens here, and we'll look at a couple of the issues that this brings up here in a minute, but I think it's just offering more detail without regard to to necessarily the sequence of some of these details. So let's look at some of the details we see. For example, in verse 7, we see that man is formed from the dust of the ground. And in verse 9, we see that in the middle of the garden that God created, he put two trees. Now we know that he names what these two trees are. The first tree is the tree of life, and the second tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second tree is going to come up and play a big role in the fall of mankind in just a minute. There are rivers that water the garden, and God actually names these rivers. In fact, two of the rivers are called the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, those are two rivers that we actually have today. And so we're going to talk about whether or not those are the same rivers that were in the garden or not. We'll get to that today. Um, There is the command then not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. So we get now the details that even though God put this tree there, he commanded them not to eat of that tree. And then in verse 19, we find out that the animals were also made from the dust of the ground and that Eve was made from Adam's rib. Now, Some people may ask, well, did God really make Adam from the dust of the ground? Is that where man came from? And did did Eve really come from Adam's rib? So just I want to touch on this in just a a little bit here. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your brow 
you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the whole, you know, at some funerals you often hear the person say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And that's exactly what this means, that man was made from the dust of the ground, and to the dust we shall return. Bill, do you remember the the uh, the atheistic uh, philosopher by the name of Carl Sagan? He had a TV show. Mm-hmm. He yeah. said, he said this once about man. He said, even through your hardest days, remember we are all made of stardust. Now, <laughs> he, he's actually right. Mm-hmm. We are made of stardust. The same elements that are in our planet that are in the universe is what we are made of. We are literally made of stardust. Now, we, we never describe it like Carl Sagan did, but he had a way with words. But notice, I will say, even through your hardest days, remember you're made of stardust. I don't know how acknowledging that you're made of the same elements as a star helps you get through your hardest days. I don't know how that works. I mean, to me, God is who I turn to to get through my hard days, not the fact that I'm made of carbon and hydrogen and so on. So, uh, But we are. That's what we're made of. And then Eve is made from Adam's rib is, is what the description is in Genesis chapter 2. Now, some believe that because of that, man actually has one less rib. And there are actually people that believe that. But if I was to, I used the example, I don't know if you've ever had a dog, Bill, and some dog breeds you, you actually, when they're puppies, you cut off their tail. If you cut off a puppy's tail and they grow up and then have puppies, are those puppies born with tails or without tails? With well, tails. Clearly, they're born with tails. You just cut off the one of the, the parents' tails, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing with the rib. God used the rib from man, made Eve from that rib, but men and women today have the same number of ribs. So I'm there. more concerned about you cutting off puppy tails. But <laughs> there are some <laughs> breeds. That I know that is what they do. I've never done that. So yeah, I know. They, Just for sometimes the Sometimes they they cut up the ears to make them stick up straight and all that. So yeah. All right, exactly. let's move on. Okay. Go. All right. So now the garden. So now let's talk about the Garden of Eden and what are some of the characteristics. What are some of the questions that I often get when I'm teaching this class? So one is, um, were there mis- probably actually, because uh, I live in Minnesota, actually, one of the most frequent questions I get was, were there mosquitoes in the garden? Second question we're going to cover is, did they really only eat plants? Were Adam and Eve really vegan? Was Eve made on day six or sometimes sometime later than that? When were the angels created? Where was the Garden of Eden? And one of the largest, biggest theological debates of them all, which is, oh, we'll get to that in a minute. We'll cover that in a minute. Oh, I like the tease. (laughs) Mosquitoes. So we know that the animal kingdom was different in the Garden of Eden. Lions did not eat other creatures, um, you know, that they, there was no car- carnivores in the Garden of Eden. That didn't come until after the fall, and we'll, uh, I think we'll get to that today. So if there's no carnivores, 
Mosquitoes today actually, you know, bite you and take your blood and so on. That's basically a carnivore. They're drinking the blood. I believe if, if mosquitoes exist today, they had to be made by God. They had to have been made in those six days of creation. That kind, remember, everything was made after their kind. So that kind of insect that the mosquito belongs to was absolutely made by God in the Garden of Eden. I just don't think they bit human beings or other animals for blood they probably, you know, drank nectar or whatever. Whatever the process was before the flood, it changed. I mean, the fall, I mean, it changed after the fall. So I believe there was mosquitoes. Mm. They just didn't drink blood. All right. <laughs> I think this is a good place to take our first break, Jeff. As we continue our discussion with Jeff Verdorn, we're talking about in the beginning. This is our third uh, segment we're doing probably five altogether and if you miss any of these please go to the beginning go learn about that at myfaithradio.com on the afternoons with bill show page so we'll be right back about our In the Beginning series. This is our third segment of In the Beginning. If you missed any, please go check out the other episodes. They were outstanding. So today we're covering Genesis 2 and 3. And we're just getting to talk about the garden and all the things that are in it, including mosquitoes. But way back then, they probably didn't bite. That is correct. And so the next question that I get often was, did Adam and Eve eat meat? Or was that uh, did they were they vegan? And both Genesis one and Genesis two is clear that God says, "I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they will be yours for food." Genesis two confirms that. He says, "Look at all the trees and their fruits, and they will be good for for food." So yes, they did not eat meat. That doesn't come until after the flood. Actually. Mm-hmm. Was Eve created on day six or sometime later? So the problem here is that Genesis 1 says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, Genesis 1.27. Well, that's part of the description of the sixth day. So when he made Adam. So it appears in Genesis 1 that God made both Adam and Eve on the sixth day. But then we get to Genesis 2, and it says this, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the air, and all the beasts of the field, but no helper was suitable or was found for Adam. So there's no mention of the woman yet. In fact, the next verse, it says that so God made a woman for man. And so it appears that it didn't. Eve wasn't created until some time later, after Adam named all the animals. So there's a couple options here. One is that Adam could have named all the animals in a day, and that Eve came along sometime later on the sixth day. 
The second option is that, well, he didn't have to name all the animals on day six. He would have been in the garden naming the animals for a long time, and that the sequence of events in Genesis 2 is just describing something that happened on day six in, in, in consistent with what Genesis 1 says. Um, there's a couple other options that Genesis 1 is an overview, that Genesis 2 is more, more detailed without regard to some of the timing issues. Um, I think, bottom line on this one, I think God made Adam and Eve on the sixth day. That seems to um, to be the easiest to reconcile to the kind of the disparities, dis, uh, discrepancies between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So um, anyway, the bigger uh, question related to men and women is God is clear that he made uh, a male and a female. Now, this is one of these things that was really non-controversial for, you know, hundreds of years, but suddenly, recently, especially in our country, it has become controversial, this whole concept of gender and how many genders are there. If you Google how many genders are are there, you get lots of different answers from 60 to 70 to over 100 in some cases. And it's like, oh man, what is going on here? I went back to the Merriam-Webster 1828 dictionary and looked up the word gender. What did gender mean? What is this, What has it historically meant? And it says this, it's the kind or sort, a sex, male or female. In other words, historically, we understood there are actually two genders, male and female. That's what gender mean meant. It meant biological sex. Now, uh, I Church, we've lost the battle of what the word gender means anymore. Gender now means, I was just reading a, a definition of gender in Women's Health Magazine or something. It's, it's basically however you feel. You can decide you feel any way about your sexual identity, your sexual expression, whatever, and that's your gender. So the society has decided that gender is no longer biological sex. So we've lost the battle in terms of what the word gender means, but the church should continue to stand for this simple truth, that God has a design for one male and one female, a design for marriage and a design for sexuality, and that is for a husband and wife to come together exclusively for sexual relationships, and we shouldn't give up that battle. Um, so there's a little comment on God making male and female. So next question. I like, yeah. When were angels created? Um, this is, depending on how old you think the universe is, you tend to um, answer this question differently. If you believe the universe is old, you have no issue with angels also have been created a long time ago. If you're a young earth creationist, it tends to, you tend to want to fit the creation of angels into the six days of creation. There's a problem with that in, in that the, the creation of angels is never mentioned in the six days anywhere, nor is the fall of the angel Satan listed or discussed anywhere in those six days. In contrast, Job 38 tells us this. He's answering Job. If you remember Job, there's chapter after chapter of Job demanding basically an audience with God, and finally God answers him, and he says, Where were you, Job, when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Surely you know. 
Who stretched out a measuring line across it? Who set its footings in place and laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So that tells us that the angels were there shouting for joy when God laid the earth's foundations. So when the earth was made. So before we see the earth already there in Genesis 1 verse 2. And so I contend that the scripture points out that the angels were made sometime before that, either at the creation of the entire universe of Genesis 1-1 or even before that. I have no problem with angels being made before Genesis 1-1 um, or after. Uh, but, but it seems clear that the angels were formed prior to the six days of creation because they sang for joy when the earth's foundations were laid. And besides, we see Satan in the garden already right after the six days of creation. If he was made in those six days, well, then he's made this, this power of Satan and, and his beauty goes to his head. He becomes prideful. He rebels. He's cast down to earth all in a very, very short time. And uh, I just don't think that fits. And besides, Job tells us that they were around when the earth was made. The next That's... question is, where was the Garden of Eden? Some like to point out that because, like I mentioned before, the rivers like the Euphrates and the Tigris are named as two of the rivers in the Garden of Eden, we have those two rivers today. But I think they miss a, a really big point, and that is this. In between the Garden and today, there was this thing called the Flood of Noah, in which the entire surface of the earth would have changed dramatically. I can't believe that the same rivers that were watering the garden are the same rivers we see today after the flood when the when the fountains of the deeps burst open and burst forth and there's a flood covering the whole earth. Surely the, the surface of the earth would have changed dramatically. And so I think we have the river Euphrates and the river Tigris today just because uh, they the people named them that after the rivers that were in the garden. And so we see in the New World, for example, many cities and towns and, and so on named after places from where they came from. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here. So I really don't think we can know where the Garden of Eden was on the earth today. Mm, so interesting. All right, Jeff, uh, we're up against a break, so we're going to step uh, aside just for a few minutes, and then when we come back, we're going to return to our study of In the Beginning. This is part three, and we are in uh, Genesis chapter two and three. Jeff Ferdorn is our teacher, and he is not only a Bible teacher, but a friend of mine and mentor, and I always like having him on the program. And we're going to be back in a couple minutes with more of In the Beginning.
If you just joined us, we are in uh, our third part of the In the Beginning series with Jeff Ferdorn, and we're awfully glad that uh, he can take us on a, a journey through In the Beginning. And right now we've been chatting about Genesis 2 and 3, and where is that Garden of Eden? Tell me more about that. I want to I wanna know more, Jeff. Hmm. Well, yeah, we really don't. Like I mentioned right before the break, that we, because of the changes to the surface of the earth that came from the flood of Noah, I really don't think we can know where the yeah. Garden of Eden actually was. So, Okay, um, when it so, was around, though, must have been awfully nice, not to mention perfect weather, because if you're naked, you got to make sure it's like the perfect temperature. <laughs> if if you're walking around with no clothes on, you, I, I doubt that they were cold. God would have not designed it cold. And there's actually <laughs> um, some... Ideas, theologians have some ideas that before the flood, that the earth was much more like a terrarium, just a perfect climate all around. There wasn't these hot and cold seasons. Remember, it also says in the Bible that it didn't rain uh, before the flood, that but a dew watered the earth and, and rivers watered the earth and the water from below, uh, from the depths watered the earth. Uh, so we know that the climate was very, very different before the flood than it was after the flood. So you could walk around without any clothes on and be very comfortable. Mm-hmm. All right. So where do we I go one more next. question. Yeah. So I tease this a little bit. So this is the great theological debate. Now I'm being kind of funny here, but the debate about whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons. This... Mm theological debate here. So now think about this. Now, this is kind of funny, but it's actually, I, I think this is accurate. Adam and Eve, remember, were not born. They were, they, they, you know, your, your belly button is the result of your umbilical cord being cut off, and it's a scar, basically. If Adam right. and Eve weren't born, I actually don't think they would have had belly buttons. And yet you look at all of the paintings throughout the centuries. When I present this in my classes, I always like to show artist renditions of the scenes that I'm teaching of. And I have looked at dozens of paintings of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they are always painted with belly buttons, including the one of the most famous, and that's Da Vinci, the creation of man, God's hand reaching out and touching Adam's hand, and Adam has a belly button. But actually, yeah. Bill, Adam wasn't born, so I don't think he would have had a belly button. <laughs> well, let's see. Okay. Um, I see your point. I don't know what to make of, make of it, but I, I'll think about it tonight. Yeah, there's there's not much uh, theological difference one way or another. It's just no, a little point that I like that. to point out. So, I'll All right, Genesis out. chapter yeah. 3, the fall. So I'm glad we have the second... We, the whole second part of the show to cover chapter three, because this is really, if you have a biblical worldview, Genesis chapter three and the fall of mankind is kind of central to this worldview. It says in Genesis chapter three, this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat 
of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, note in this story a number of very important things. That the serpent, first of all, the serpent is already there. Satan has already fallen from his position in heaven and is showing up as a serpent in the garden. Also notice what Eve says. She says that we're not supposed to eat of it. She also says we must not even touch it. Now, I read earlier the actual command from God, and the command from God was to not eat it. God didn't tell Adam and Eve not to touch it. So we don't exactly know where she got this command. Uh, Some speculate that this was Adam telling Eve, now God has told us not to eat that tree. Don't even touch it. Don't go near it. And that potentially could be where it's from. But Eve definitely understood that she wasn't even supposed to touch it. Now, Satan says three things. He says, first, did God really say? Now, Satan's really calling God a liar here or trying to misrepresent what God actually said, clearly said to Adam about eating from this tree. And so he's calling God a liar. He's attacking the very foundations of God's word, which is really the same attack he's doing today. Did God really say this about gender or marriage or sexuality? Did God really say this about money or salvation or how we're supposed to live a holy and pleasing life to him or and whatever God says. And that's the same attack he uses today. He also said, you will not die. Now, here's an interesting question. Did Adam and Eve die that day? And the answer is they actually did not die physically that day. They actually lived much longer after this event. So was Satan right? Well, he was half right. It's a half lie. They didn't die physically that day. Physical death would follow. But what happened on that day is that Adam and Eve died spiritually. Their spirit died. Mankind, God indicates that mankind is made of body, soul, and spirit. That spirit part of the man, the pneuma in the Greek, is the part where we are united with God. And when they sinned, God separated himself from Adam and Eve. He had to withdraw himself from their spirit. That's how God dwells within mankind, by his spirit. So when he withdrew from them, they became fallen which is another way of saying they were they became spiritually dead. So Paul says in Romans, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, right? The wages of sin is death. So we are we are dead, we are spiritually dead, we are separated from God and that's the death that came at the fall in the garden. Now physical death followed. They no longer 
one of the consequences, as we'll see in a minute, is they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden so that they would not have access to the tree of life and live forever. And I think that was God saying that they shouldn't have access to the tree of life and live forever in their fallen state because God had a plan. And we'll see that in just a minute. The next thing Satan says is, he says, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Mm. And again, was he right? Well, actually, he was in a way. It's a half-lie. God actually says after the fall, now they've become like us, knowing good and evil. So Satan is actually right. But God intended mankind to be innocent of the ways of evil. And I think that's what's happening here. Have If you've ever... I think the picture we can have today to kind of describe what Adam and Eve is like, because remember, one of the consequences is that they, they suddenly understood that they were naked, and so they clothed themselves. And if you've ever given your kid or your grandkid a bath in the tub and they get out and they start running down the hallway, they have no clue that they are without clothing. It's not that <laughs> they aren't at the age in which they even understand that yet. And I think that's exactly how Adam and Eve were. They were innocent to all those things, and suddenly they became aware of it. And she took some, and she ate it. Now, here's a very interesting question. Was Adam there when she was deceived by the serpent and took some of the fruit and ate it? When there's two possibilities, of course, that Adam was there, and he said nothing because we don't see Adam in the narrative. We don't see him saying anything. He doesn't stop Eve from, you know, taking the fruit or being deceived by the serpent. Um, you know, if he was there, you'd think he would have said something. The second possibility was, however, that Adam wasn't there and that Eve was the one that was deceived. She's the one who listened to the serpent and then brought some to her husband who was with her in the garden. And so there's a couple other passages that kind of confirm this second possibility that actually Adam was not there. One was in one is in in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that said Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived. 2 Corinthians 11 says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds might be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion of Christ. And Genesis 3, 13, coming up here in just a couple of verses, the Lord says to the woman, what is it that you have done, woman? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Actually, many theologians, including like, for example, John Calvin, said that, no, Adam was not there. He said that these words coming from the Lord to Adam was present, uh, conjecture that Adam was present when his wife was tempted and persuaded by the serpent, which is by no means credible. So many theologians over the years have understood that, no, it couldn't have been that Adam was there when Eve was tempted. So later in the chapter, it says this, God comes to them, now they've fallen, and he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now, who, who is Adam blaming there in verse 12? The woman you put here 
with me. She gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. It sounds like he's blaming the woman. But let me read it again. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. I think he's actually blaming God. Regardless of who Adam is blaming, the woman or God, you can tell he's not blaming himself, is he? No. And then verse 17. Because you've listened to your wife, not because you listened to the serpent, Adam, and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. So see, God even says to Adam, you've listened to your wife. I don't think Adam was there. I don't think God is saying that Adam is the one deceived. Adam listened to his wife. Eve gave him some of the fruit. Adam listened to his wife. The woman was the one deceived. Um, So I give that to you for consideration. I I don't know that a lot of people have really thought about it. I think a lot of people just assume that Adam was there. But if Adam was there, he said nothing and didn't stop what was happening. And besides, we have in Scripture that it was Eve that was the one who was deceived and gave some to his wife. And that's exactly what God says, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit. So I think the picture is, is that Adam wasn't there. Eve was there deceived by the serpent, and then took some of the fruit to Adam, who was with her in the garden. Mm. By the way, one last point here, and we're probably up on a break again. We are. The, the fruit was most likely not an apple, by the way. It was probably some other fruit. But some, for some reason, it's always pictured as an apple in artwork. So, But it probably most likely was some other fruit, probably a fruit that we don't even know about. Uh, because mm-hmm. it was in the garden. The garden, remember, they were kicked out of the garden and God shut the garden down. And so it's probably a fruit that probably doesn't even exist anymore on the face of the earth. Wow. Jeff Ferdorn is my guest. We're continuing our study on In the Beginning. We'll be back after a short break. Jeff Dorn. We're on part three of a, probably a five-part series, and right now we've been spending time in the Garden of Eden and learning about the temptation and the um, the eating of the fruit and then the passing of the fruit on to Adam. And we're guessing uh, from what Scripture indicates. We're not guessing. We're saying from what Scripture indicates, most likely they weren't together at the time. Yeah, so then... What comes next in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3 is the consequences. Mm-hmm. So God gives consequences to the fall, to to both the serpent, the woman, and the man. And, uh, and I want to take them in reverse order. So I want to cover the consequences to Adam first, and then we'll go to the woman and then the serpent. So in reverse order, he says to Adam, he says, Now cursed is the ground that you will have to work for your food, painful toil to eat, thorns and thistles, 
by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to produce food. In the garden, you just walked around and picked the plants or the fruit or whatever, and you didn't have to work for it. But now man is going to have to work for it. And this has been the toil of man ever since, trying to produce food. He saw also that you will return to the dust, meaning that physical death will also come. And, and that's con very consistent with Romans 5, where it says that after the fall, death came to all men. And it started with Adam. To the woman, God says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. So that actually wasn't God's design. That is a result of the fall. He also says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, remember, this is not the, the concept of the man over the woman. We know that biblically, man is the head of the family, head of the household, just as Christ is the head of the, the church. But never mistake this headship as being uh, some kind of dominant figure. I mean, this has been, you know, in, in many religious systems, uh, the perverted in a way that, that, that somehow man can rule over woman and control what she does and so on and so forth. It, never forget in Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about husbands and wives, it says, husbands love your church or love your bride just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it, then it says, wives submit to your husbands. But, but don't forget that whole passage starts with this line, therefore submit to one another as to the Lord. So there's a mutual beneficial relationship here uh, that I just think I should mention. Otherwise, people are going to take that the wrong way. And then to the serpent. He says to the serpent, you will be cursed and crawl on your belly. Well, I think that's actually to the serpent that Satan was speaking through. I think that's a consequence of potentially the animal. And the, most people think it's now snakes going on their without legs going on their ground. But the next two things he says to the serpent, I think, are actually to Satan, who was indwelling or speaking through the serpent. And the first is this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, these are actually really obscure prophecies for what is going to play out over the next centuries and specifically, what, specifically what's going to happen at the cross of Christ. Because I believe this is the first prophecy that God gives us for the coming Messiah, who is going to redeem mankind from the fall, from the sin that we just read about in chapter 3. And immediately after that sin is described in Genesis chapter 3, God gives us this first prophecy for his solution to this problem. So when he says, he will crush your head, I think that he is this coming Messiah, Jesus. And you will strike his heel is a reference to Christ dying on the cross. Satan thought he had a big victory at the cross, but he didn't. It's like, like he struck Jesus's heel. Because in the end, the, the devil is a defeated foe. He will be crushed by this Messiah. There's actually a story that I'd like to read a portion of it. It's, it's called The Christmas Seed, and it's by Del Tackett, uh, who did The Truth Project. 
And he just phrases this concept of this seed and the battle between that's described here in Genesis chapter 3 in a beautiful way. Let me read it. When God spoke the earth into existence, it was formless and void, a lump of clay, ready for the hands of the craftsman to do his creative work. Birds and fish, animals and plants, things that flew and swam. Birds laid eggs and brought forth baby birds. Animals gave birth to animals, and they gave birth to their own babies. Plants produced seed and fruit that fell to the ground and produced more plants. This was God's plan. But something happened, something bad, something evil. Now the garden was going to produce weeds and thistles and thorns. Rather than delight in life, evil delighted in death. Rather than beauty, it loved the vile. Rather than fruit, it now bore poison. It's hard to imagine how instantly a garden filled with light could become so cold and so dark so quickly. And it appeared as if there was no remedy, no fix, no hope to get it back. That's when God told us about the seed. He didn't say much. In fact, it wasn't a whole lot, more than a hint, a clue, a glimmer of hope. But with God, whose power and might is infinite, a whisper of a promise is as sure as it gets. If he said it was going to take care of it, then we didn't need a lot of details. Was it a mystery? Yes. But it carried the promise that God, through this seed, was going to destroy the evil that had turned off the light in the garden. And if that happened, then maybe, just maybe, God also planned on turning the light on as well. But for sure we knew that before the seed came, there was going to be war. And this war was going to rage between the seed line of the evil one and the seed line of the woman. And boy, did it ever rage. Abraham was granted an understanding of that seed was going to come through him. Later, David was given the same promise. And the war to destroy that seed line was furious. It came from within and from without. There were times when it looked like the evil line had won, but it hadn't. Even at the moment when the heart of that seed stopped beating, when it appeared to all as if the promise had died, death itself was insufficient to stand in the way of the plan of God to destroy the evil one. It wasn't until years later, however, that God would move Paul to write these fascinating words. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. God made a promise to mankind that he would bring forth this seed to destroy the evil one and eventually to restore all things. He protected that seed line from Eve to Mary. He protected it through the flood and Noah. He protected it from Pharaoh and Ahab and Jezebel. He protected it from the Babylonians and the Assyrians. He protected it from Haman and Herod and Pontius Pilate. And then he protected it from the enemy's final stand and snatched it from the clutches of death and the grave. Oh, the wonder and grandeur of God, who has given us a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's really powerful, Jeff. 
I like so that good. story. Yeah, I do too. So the picture is right when mankind falls, God gives us this very glimpse, not just you most wouldn't even recognize it. And in fact, we probably don't even recognize it without the full revelation of the rest of the New Testament and Paul's writing and telling us who this seed is, and it is the Christ. And so right after the fall, God gives us hope. He gives us this picture. Hey, I know that mankind has fallen. I've got a solution, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he's going to come and die for the sins of the world. Remember John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after he rose again in power and in glory, God says, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And our worldview of Christians, that we still live in this fallen world, it's been fallen since Genesis chapter 3. We have a fallen creation. We have a fallen angel who's running around mucking things up. Scripture says he's roaming this earth like a hungry lion looking for whom to devour. We have a whole bunch of fallen people making fallen decisions. There's sickness. There's disease. There's war. Mm. Christians often ask, well, why do these bad things happen in this world? And some want to blame God for these bad things, but it's not God's fault. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is a result of the fall that we just read in Genesis chapter 3. Awesome study, Jeff. Thank you so much. That wraps up our time for today. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.